Good church, let's give it up for Jesus this morning. Let's give it up for our millennials. Come on, let's give it up for our millennials. I love millennials. I like to pick on them and harass them a bit, but I tell you, there's been no generation before with as much access to reaching the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ than these millennials have. And I just believe that they are going to usher in a revival this world has never, ever seen. We can, we can tease and say they're lazy and all of this, but I will tell you this, there is a seed of heaven planted inside of them that has been watered for generations before, and something is about to break loose in the spirit realm, and in this generation, we call millennials. Amen? I believe it. I believe it. Well... We are here today on this cold Sunday. I'm so glad that uh, you're here. I do want to take a moment to honor our parking team, our parking host out there. They're bundled up. I shook their hands earlier, and their poor fingers were about to just flake off. They're so freezing. Um, Can we just honor our parking team? I just... I really appreciate the fact that they value being prepared and here to serve us more than their own convenience and comfortability. So thank you guys very much. If you'll stand to your feet again. We are in a series called XO Love Relationships and the Church. Just to give you a heads up, I didn't get to finish my sermon in first service Therefore, I'm going to try to land this plane at the same location and pick it back up next week. Um, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great series. Although it was scheduled to be done today, I'm going to have to push it out one more week, if that's okay. Our relationships are worth an extra week, right? So we're going to <clears throat> go to Ephesians chapter 4. And just to give you a little bit of background, Ephesians has six chapters in the Bible. It's written by... The Apostle Paul, and chapters 1 through 3, Paul is telling us basically what we should think, right? What we should think about God, what we should think about prayer, what we should think about sanctification, justification, all of this. If you read 1 through 3, and Paul is pretty much known for being super practical in many of his books. He spends the first three chapters saying what we should think. But then he spends the next three chapters, chapter 4, 5, and 6, actually laying out how we should live. How many know that faith without works is dead? So you can have the right belief system, but if your actions aren't in alignment with what you claim to believe, then it's not really working for you. So we have to have the right framework, the right faith, and the partner, the right actions with what we believe. So I take you today to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. It says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs 
that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Over the last two weeks, I've been somewhat theoretical, philosophical in my approach to relationships. I hope that you've left encouraged, inspired, and challenged, and it had maybe planted a seed and laid the groundwork for the Lord to speak to you throughout the week. Today, I want to get really, really practical. I just want to get down to the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of relationships Because I'm tired of us coming to church, feeling a bit encouraged, but then going home the same way that we came. So what does that look like when you're in relational turmoil, whether it's with your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or your boss or yourself? I want to help navigate that with you today. But first, Holy Spirit, will you come? You showed me in worship that I need to step into a place of authority in this moment and cast down every spirit of division, every spirit of distraction, every spirit of mockery that would come against what you want to do in the next 30 minutes, that would come against the hearts of your people that desperately need reconciliation in their relationships. So God, that car ride to church, the argument that we had, the days we've not been speaking to our spouse, we release that right now in the name of Jesus. We say that that past cannot go into our future. We release it. The spirit of division in our homes must go. And we just release and speak and pour into our homes a spirit of unity, a spirit of reconciliation, a spirit of peace. God, come and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray, let the church shout, yes, amen. All right, before you sit down, I want you to meet two or three people, high-five them, give them a hug, a fist bump, and then you may be seated. Meet somebody new. We got some new, beautiful people here today. I saw that camera. I sucked in my stomach. I did, sure did. Felt it. You do it too. (laughs) Mood, yeah. Yeah, too trill. Anyway, um, I've learned a lot of millennial words because we play this game at my house and they're they're teaching me. Problem is, if you can't say it cool, it just makes you look like you're trying to be young and you're not young. So I try to steer clear. You know, you got to be your age, Um, which is actually one of my points today. Um, How many believe here that the reason God came to, to the earth was to create family. I think that's the only reason. I mean, for generations, there was this chasm between he and us from our own making, right? Our own decisions, our sin tainted the relationship, our our perceived flaws of our nakedness, what the Lord meant to be righteous and pure, 
we began to see as something that was unholy. But Jesus didn't come to take over Rome. He, he didn't come to be the big cheese and let everybody know just how much he's the goat. He came to create family. He came so that he could actually cover us with a robe of righteousness, that he could cover our sin. And in that, that moment where he gave his life on Calvary for our sin, he paid a price that I could not pay so that he could call me his son. Family. We see from Genesis all the way to Revelations, it's all about family. That's what God is all about. And don't you think for one moment that God is very invested and interested in your family? Because your marriage represents the marriage of Christ and his church. Your relationship with your children represents a father's heart, a mother's heart from heaven. Like that's what it looks like for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth is for us to walk in alignment to what God intends for family. Family is a big deal. Family is a, a huge deal. I want to take you to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. I never really understood this, um, but maybe we can break it down together. I can give you my opinion, you, and you can disagree. But Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, it says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. It's better to go to a funeral than a wedding. Isn't that crazy? How many of you prefer funerals over weddings? Shane? <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. And j just me and Shane? How many of you prefer funerals over weddings? Mama does too. That's, that's interesting. Um, I, I prefer funerals for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm a, I'm a preacher. And so oftentimes when I'm at a wedding or a funeral, I'm in the position of being the presenter, right? I get to preach or speak or say the vows and all of that. And by the way, if I married you, I, I loved being at your wedding. Really, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. My concern is when I'm doing weddings, it feels more like a production. You know, I've, I've got to, first of all, wear a suit, which is problematic, and uh, so I wear I wear a suit, and I've, I've got my notes, and I've got to say things right. I've got to say the names right. I I can't tell you how many times I've looked at the groom and said, do you take her to be your husband? You know, it's just, I get everyone confused. I mix up names. I, I once pronounced someone man and wife and gave them the wrong last name. Like, it just, it feels so much tension on me to do a wedding. I love it. I love the celebration. I love when my part is done. But you put me in a funeral, and I feel like I'm in the center of my purpose. Because I'm there delivering hope. It's not about a show. I know the people at the funeral, they're not, they're not um, picking apart what people are wearing. They're not picking apart the slideshow. They're not picking apart the flowers. They're not picking apart the, the venue. Do you know what I mean? At a funeral, you don't care about any of that stuff. You're just there to love on somebody, to be a support to their family, and to show honor. You don't really, you're not picking everything apart. But at a wedding, did you, girl, did you see that dress? I just think, for me, that maybe God is saying it's better to go to a funeral because in those instances, we are really focused on the brevity of life. I know that I get that way. My wife, my wife doesn't really like funerals. She hates them. It makes, it's like gloom, and she just doesn't like the tears. My wife likes to see everybody happy. She'll do whatever she can just to make people laugh and, 
and have a good time. She loves weddings. I'm telling you, she falls in love with me every wedding we go to. So even if I'm not your preacher at your wedding, please invite us. It helps our marriage. She loves the whole romantic thing of it all. And she just looks at me, uh, forgetting who I really am. And she says, I just love you so much. But then we go to a funeral and we're sad because we take on the weight of the mourning and the loss and the pain of other people. When I do a funeral, I leave that place and I think about all my family, my kids, Micah in Australia, married to a lovely girl, Rachel, my my daughter, Michaela, married to an okay guy, Lawrence, my, my, um, my new in-laws that I get to spend time with are fantastic. My parents, my, my siblings, my nieces. I just start thinking about all the people that I love. And I wonder, I wonder if I treat them in a way that is worthy of how much I say they really mean to me. You ever wonder that? Like I say, the people that I love the most probably get the least part of who I really am. Unfortunately, don't we all fall into that? You have to put on the mask. You have to put on the game face at work, right? You want that promotion. You want that paycheck. So you do everything you can to put on the best side of you to all of these other people. And you go home to the people that you love the most. And we offer them our leftovers. There are, there are four ways that you and I can have a healthy relationship. Now, if you're married, this will apply to you. If you're divorced, this will apply to you. If you're widowed, this will apply to you. If you are single and searching, this will apply to you. If you are single and not searching, it still applies to you. If you are 10 years old, like Avery Harris, who this is her first day because she turned in serving in the newborn area. She's been waiting for 10 years to serve at the Exchange Church. And she is so excited. If you're 10 years old here today, it applies to you. If you're 110 years old, this applies to you. Because the devil, the enemy, will do everything in his power to get a foothold into your relationships. He wants to create dysfunction. He doesn't even, he really, the ultimate win for him is not the divorce. The ultimate win for him is not the mental breakdown. The win for him is the foothold. Because he knows if he can get one foot in the door, it leaves room for two. So he just takes one step at a time. And he wants to come in between our relationships. So how can we have better relationships? There are four ways you have notes today. I actually have a fifth point. So maybe it's four plus one. But since I won't finish this sermon next week on the notes, I'll add the fifth one for you when you come back. Number one, to create healthy relationships, we have to be honest, not deceptive. Be honest not deceptive. If we read in verse 25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. How many of you would say, I'm not a bold-faced liar? Well then, I know what my next series is, young people. Let's focus on not having bold, do you know what a bold-faced liar is? That's called, um, what's the opposite of millennial? Mature language? Both, like, you just say a lie, and you know it's a lie, and you don't care that it's a lie, and you you feel okay with it. How many of you would say, I'm not a bold-faced liar? I don't intentionally just lie like crazy just because I want to lie like crazy, right? I think probably more heads would go up. 
But the reality is most of us live a dishonest life. We do. And that's coming between our relationships. When we look at this word falsehood in the Greek, it actually means pseudos. You ever heard of pseudonym? Pseudonym? A false name. Falsehood isn't just saying a bold-faced lie. Falsehood is presenting something to make it look one way when it's actually another way. Shall I give you an example? Kids, go clean your room. All right, audit, Dad. Then you're gone two hours. And I say, what are you doing? And you say, cleaning my room, Dad. Right? Do you know what this means? Whatever you want it to mean. Texting, video games, whatever. You're giving the illusion that you're cleaning your room, but you're not. You're wanting your parents to believe that you did it. Or, 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 um, let's see, another good one. Hey, boys, did you take out the trash? Yes. What they meant to say or should have said, yes, I took it out of the trash can, but it's sitting by the back door. But they wanted me to believe that they took the trash where it needs to go, right? Tristan, you're here. You're my son. I can call on you. Run up here with a microphone. So I'm, I'm currently in this thing with my kids because I'll tell you, um, the Lord has really challenged me on what it means to be live an honest life, meaning um, while I would never consider myself a liar, I feel like we could always be better at uh, portraying the real truth of the situation, right? And so I'm working on that, and I got this book because I'm spending a lot of time right now thinking about what I think about, and I got this book two days ago, so I'll share it with you. Maybe you want to buy it. It's called Lies Men Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. And so I'm trying to identify what are lies that I, that I believe as a man? What are some of the lies? And there are 40 chapters. Each one is about two or three pages. So it's more like a little devotion. And a couple days ago, I, I was up around 5 a.m. and got the kids up at around 6.30. And me and the boys sat on the couch. And I thought, I need to be more intentional teaching my boys, 16 and age 13, what it means to be a man of God so that when I'm no longer in the picture, whatever that looks like, whether they move away or God takes me home, that they have all the tools in their belt to become a real, fully functioning man of God. And so we chose one of these to talk about, and I'm going to quiz Tristan, see if he remembers it. But let me share some of these lies. You want to hear them? Lies men believe about marriage and family. Number one, love doesn't require spoken words. A lot of men believe that lie. That's a lie. Isn't that a lie? My wife is supposed to make me happy. That's a lie. <laughs> yes. It is, that's a lie that we, we believe, right? We believe it's our job, it's our wife's job to make us happy. It's no one's job to make you happy. No, it's your job to be a happy person. So please don't put that false responsibility on your spouse. Another one is, um, I don't have to grow up. Wives, Another lie we believe, if I discipline my kids, they'll rebel. Another lie we believe, a little porn is harmless. So it's, it's a lie. It's a bait of Satan right there. Um, here's another one. What my wife doesn't know won't hurt her. 
That's a bad lie. Um, oh, here's another one. I have sexual needs my wife can't fulfill. That's a lie. That's a lie. Um, Tristan. So a couple days ago, stand up here in front of the table so everyone can see you. A couple days ago, we talked about one of these chapters. Do you, can you tell us what is the lie that men believe? You and I aren't going to believe this lie anymore, or if we ever did, we're setting our minds straight. But what is, what is the lie that men often believe? Speak in the microphone. Secret sin only hurts themselves. Say that again a little bit louder. Secret sin only hurts themselves. So that's a lie that we believe. Secret sin only hurts ourselves. That's a lie, right? So that actually has two lies in it, and there are two truths that we talked about and pulled out of that. So what are the two truths? There is no secret sin. There is no secret sin. And it hurts everyone around them. It hurts everyone around them. You do realize there is no secret sin. The Bible is very clear about the things that are hidden will be revealed. And even if you think it's secret and no one holds you accountable on earth, you're being held accountable in the spirit realm. Because you've made sin your friend. And it doesn't just impact you because whenever your spirit man gets weighed down with the guilt and the shame that I know you're carrying because this secret sin is eating you up. And that's why you've not told anyone. So the guilt and shame that you're carrying makes you not be all the man of God or woman of God that you can and should be. And it affects every relationship you're in, every relationship. It affects the relationship and your capacity to witness to other people in Walmart. It affects your capacity to be a dad, to be a mom, to be a husband, to be a wife. Secret sin is not a secret because everyone around you is affected by it. Can you give it up for Tristan? Good job, Tristan. The next slide the boys are doing tomorrow is I don't have to clean my room. I don't have to. Post that. What, this? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll post that. Be honest, not deceptive. I wrote down a few ways that were false. Um, and it erodes trust in the relationship. Maybe these are things that you haven't thought of. I wrestle with some of these. The first one is false promises. False promises. You ever called somebody or somebody called you because you're running late and they say, hey, where are you? And you said, I'm five minutes away. You are not five minutes away. You know you're not five minutes away. You know exactly how far away you are. And you know that when you park, you're going to go to the bathroom. And you're going to have to get the elevator and, and go up. You're more like 15 minutes away. So you just say five minutes because you, that means, oh, I can just buy a little bit more time. And when they call me in seven minutes, I'll be like, oh, it's three minutes away. I'm almost in traffic. Right? False promises. Just be honest. Be honest. Say, you know what? My GPS says I am going to be 30 minutes late, and I have wasted so much of your time, and I am so sorry. Please forgive me, but that's the time I'm actually going to be there. Don't erode trust in the relationship by giving false promises. If you tell your kids you're going to be somewhere to see their recital or to see their game, be there. If you tell your spouse that you're going to work, go to work. If you tell your spouse you're going to the gym, go to the gym. You don't even have to work out, but go to the gym. 
I, I mean, honestly, after, I was in a season of depression a long time ago, and not a long time ago, but not recently. And I told my wife, <laughs> I don't know how to weigh all that. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to the gym. And so I went to the gym, and I got home, and she says, how's your workout? Oh, I didn't work out. Actually, I didn't actually go inside the gym. I was at the gym parking lot. And I sat in the car, and I prayed, and I cried. Because for me, in that moment in time, that was my big faith step, to get out of bed, to start my engine, and get to a gym. Whatever we say we're going to do, you and I have to be better about letting our yes be yes and our no be no. We have to become the most reliable people on the planet. I believe that people of God should be the most reliable people on the planet. Now, I get that things come up, okay? So this is not like a no grace zone. There's plenty of grace and mercy when things come up and are legit. But if you're constantly having to reschedule because you didn't prioritize what you previously committed, that's a problem. And you're eroding trust in the relationship. Another one is not following through. That's something I'm working on. My wife will say, hey, are you going to fix the sink? Be quiet, Mom. That's my mother-in-law. I'll say, yes, I'm going to fix the sink. And, and I don't commit to a day or a month or a year. But enough times if my wife and my mother-in-law tag team and griping about it, I call Albert <laughs> to come help me fix the disposal. If you say you're going to do it, just do it. You, you know, really what my problem is, is I, I say yes to a lot of things and then I feel overwhelmed because they're all good things. And I just love to help people. But the reality is if I don't have the capacity or even the knowledge to fix something or do something that I commit to, I can at least pick up a phone and get someone there that can. So that when I say something's going to be taken care of, it actually happens because I follow through. Can you imagine if Jesus was sent to earth? And just before the crucifixion, we've all been hearing that he's going to lay down his life. And he says, wait a minute, I I don't know. I don't think we're going to do that. The gospel happens because of a God who follows through. A God who is always faithful. A God who will always do what he says he's going to do. If we want to build healthy relationships, you and I have to follow through. Another one is living a secret life. Does your spouse have all of your passwords to your email, to your social media, to your phone? I understand we all navigate relationships and what the context of our marriage looks like, but let me just tell you something. If you want to ensure a healthy marriage, you should be able to pass your phone to your spouse at any point and not have to say, oh, hold on a minute. Let me uh, delete browsing history. Let me uh, delete that text message. Oh, let me delete that Facebook message interaction between me and her or me and him or whatever, whatever it looks like. My wife has full access to my phone at any given point of the day, time, or time of day or night. Any point. That's what an honest relationship feels like. You know what else? I shared, if you don't know this can happen, I'm not trying to create mistrust in your relationship, but, um, and there's not mistrust in our relationship, but we share each other's location. So she doesn't, if I can't get to a text, 
If I don't hear my phone ring or I'm in a meeting and I don't see that she's trying to find me, she can go on there, tap info, and she can know he's at the church building or he's at home or he's in the Gold's parking lot. Right? And that's helpful. It is helpful. And, and I'll see where she's at and I'll see, oh, man, she's still at Walmart? Oh, man, she's at Ross again? You know, and then I brace myself. Brace myself. She loves Ross. And uh, I, I think that's just good to have an honest, honest, open relationship. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, you probably need to ask yourself, what is it that you're hiding from your spouse? If your kids, by the way, my kids, I know their locations as well. Well, my boys don't have a phone yet. They're too young, 16 and 13. But Addison does. She's 19. And I know her location at all times. And she has nothing to hide, and she's okay with it. Now, if she came to me and said, Dad, why why are you looking at my phone? My, my daughter's 19, and I still check her phone. I know that seems like controlling to you, but the reality is I'm still the authority in her life to shepherd her into the gospel. And there's a big difference. Hold on, you can clap in a minute. There's a big difference between being controlling and just having visibility into something. I have to have visibility into my kid's world if I'm going to help them navigate what life looks like. I'm not telling her who to text, who not to text, what she can and can't say. But when I see it and we have to talk about it, I'm navigating how she processes truth, how she processes righteousness and holiness. Does that make sense? If you want to have honesty in your home, though, it takes some work because you have to create an environment for honesty. We can tell our kids all day long to be honest. Don't lie to me. Why did you lie to me? You're grounded for 10 years. And then we respond so viscerally, so angrily that now it's just, it's not even about wanting to be righteous and honest. They're just in this self-preservation mode. They want to survive. Now they have to maintain a lie because they're afraid it's going to lead to rejection. You want your kids to be honest? Create an atmosphere where they can tell you anything and you won't lose it. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences, right? It doesn't mean, oh, you were honest, so you, you were right. You threw the dog out of the second story window. No, no problem. Thanks for being honest, buddy. No, you're paying that vet bill. Like there's going to be a consequence, but I, I can't freak out when my kids come to me and say something, if they were to say something outrageous, like, hey, dad, I'm dating a, a boy that you don't approve of, or I'm dating a girl that you don't approve of, or, or hey, dad, I, I looked at pornography, I saw pornography, hey, dad, um, like, I, I'm addicted to masturbation and lust, and I don't know how to get over it. I can't freak out in those moments. I welcome their honesty because they're, they're coming to me in need of the wisdom that I carry. Be honest. The second one is be a peacemaker, not a grudge holder. If we go to verse 28, it says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Isn't it interesting that it says, in your anger? In other words, hey, you're going to get mad. You ever known someone that's just so happy, you, you're like, you swear they never get mad? 
Those people take me off, right? You're going to get mad. The Bible says it's okay to be angry. It is okay to be angry, but just don't sin. In fact, there are some things that you and I should get good and hot about, to be honest. We, we, should, get, we should get really, really angry when we hear of divorce going on. Not angry at a he or angry at a she, but angry at the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We should get so angry that families are being torn apart and ripped apart that we should be motivated and propelled on our knees in prayer to fight the spiritual battle on their behalf. Divorce should make you angry. It really should. Addiction, that should tick you off so much that someone has elevated something above God. They have placed something else on the throne of their heart rather than, than God. Porn addiction, coming between marriages, distorting what, what God-given beautiful sex between a husband and wife looks like. That should make you angry. Pornography, addiction, not angry at the person. Angry at the slanderer. Angry, angry at the devil who is trying to get his foot in the door of relationships. It should make you angry. And your heart should break for that person that's in that addiction. And you should fight with everything within you to help pull them out of that pit. Sex trafficking should make you angry. Angry, like almost lose my salvation anger. When you hear of kids being taken and used for sex at God-awful ages, that should make, it should make you angry. Murder. Murder should make you angry. There are things that you and I should get angry about, but don't sin. I love that the Bible here talks about the various types of anger, I suppose. I'm scared of silent, angry people. You ever know those people that they're angry and that you don't know it almost? Yep. You know those cars, those uh, new cars that they're not even really running when you stop at the stoplight until you hit the gas? You can be standing right next to it and you don't hear it running at all. And then they hit the gas and you're like, oh, there's the engine. There it goes, right? Some people's anger is like that. Silent and deadly anger. They scare me. Those people scare me. I would rather, I would rather you blow up in my face, cuss me out, get red in the face, be loud, vocal, scream at me, because then at least I know where we stand. I know to put a door between you and me, right? But these silent people that are angry, I don't know what you're putting in my drink. Who made that? Who made that food? Oh, I'm not hungry today. We, we can be angry, but still not sin. I'm running out of time. I love how, um, I just love the Bible so much, man. I can just relate to so many things. You guys ever notice just what an angry person Moses was? Moses, the one who wrote like the first five books of the Bible, Moses was an angry person. He had anger issues. He did. I mean, think about it. He was up on the mountain talking to God face to face, the presence of God and the glory of God. He gets the, the Ten Commandments, right? God makes the Ten Commandments. And, and Moses goes down to the edge of the mountain and they're worshiping the golden calf. And he flips out, he loses it. Like anger on steroids. Like 
zero to 100 in four seconds. And he smashes the very thing that God gave him. And then he shreds up the golden calf, throws it in the water, and tells the people to drink it. That's anger issues. He needs an anger management class. We see later in Scripture that he, he strikes a, a rock for water, and he's angry. He's not following what God has told him to do. Did you know that it's his anger that kept him from entering into the promised land? He worked for 40 years for a promise that he had heard and believed from God, yet it was his anger that allowed him to only see the promise but never step into it. And I'm afraid that some of us here today We'll never see the fulfillment of God's best for us. Not because God doesn't want us to have it, but our anger keeps us from entering into the promises that God has for us. Be a peacemaker, not a grudge holder. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. If you look in the Greek, foothold means topography, a map, topography. So what the Bible is saying in this verse is that When you let the sun go down while you're angry, you give the devil a foothold. You give him topography. You give him place. You give him real estate. You give him land in your life. Because you got mad and stayed that way a little too long. It's okay. Get mad. Get mad. If you want to get mad, get mad. But don't let it last more than a day. Because the devil, if you look in the Greek, it's diabolos. And it translates into slanderer. So when you're not talking to your spouse, you can guarantee that the slanderer is talking to them about you. And the slanderer is talking to you about them. And he's planning worst case scenarios. You're already seeing yourself in divorce court. You don't know, you're, you're casting blame or you're, you're one of those people who takes all the blame so much unhealthily so that you just are worth nothing and your, your self-esteem begins to plummet lower and lower and lower. Get mad get over it really quickly. My third point. Did I get to point three in the next service? I didn't explain what. No. Uh, I didn't say point three. Be selfless, not selfish. Oh, I said it. Oh, in the first service. Gotcha. I I should have marked where I ended. Point number three, be selfless, not selfish. I'm not going to go into that because I believe that's pretty um, self-explanatory. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. People that steal are only thinking about themselves. And we are stealing from the relationship anytime that you and I are selfish instead of selfless. We'll talk more about that next week. My favorite part of the sermon is four and five. I'm really bummed that I have to cut it off, but I do hope that you will come back next week and we'll wrap this thing up and hit the ball out of the park. All right, let me pray over you. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in the life of our church and our hearts individually in relationships. God, I thank you that over the next seven days, you are just going to bring so much stability into homes. God, the tension in the marriages right now, this rocky ground, this miscommunication, the just the junk that's going on. God, you're going to start to bring some solid answers and solutions to the 
things that these people are going through. God, I just thank you that the lack of joy, the lack of fulfillment, the lack of purpose, the lack of intentionality, you're just going to start to overflow our marriages and all of our relationships with so much of your purpose and your presence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. God bless you. Can you give Jesus a hand clap this morning? God bless you.